Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about films. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave in my own personal experiences with the films that I talk about. I discuss the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. This week's episode is all about Abbas Kiarostami's 1990 film, Close Up. I adore this film. I feel a very deep connection to it. It's part of a series that I'm doing about formative art house films that really made me fall in love with cinema. In the series, I've talked about The Passion of Joan of Arc, La Jetée, Cleo from 5 to 7, La Ventura, and now I'm talking about Close Up because this is a really important film in my life. And Abbas Kuristami is a director who I really do love, and I think his work is so important. So I, I hope you'll stick around and listen to this episode, and listen to me talk about Close Up. Her Head in Films has a Patreon, where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis, and also access rewards and extras. This week, uh, a bonus mini-episode that I did for my page for patrons at a certain level um, was an episode about Alice Guy Blachet, who's considered the first woman filmmaker, and she's a really important figure in the history of cinema. So if you'd like to listen to that episode, you can become a patron. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout-out on each episode. So I would like to give a shout out to my patrons, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for your support. You really do make the podcast possible. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, telling your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or just sending an encouraging message to me. I'm on Facebook at Her Head in Films. I want to talk a bit about Abbas Kiarostami's cinema, a bit about his um, life and his work, before I get into my full analysis of the film. For those of you who have not seen Close Up, I do want to give you a brief summary, which will help you as I'm talking about it. It's about a man named Hossein Sapsian, and he is in love with cinema, and he adores cinema. And this is a true story. This actually happened. Sapsian pretended to be a very famous Iranian filmmaker named Mohsen Makhmobov, who's very iconic and legendary director in Iran. He lied to this family and said that he was Makhmobov. He even went so far as to say he wanted to make a film about them and, and use their home as a shooting location. He is found out. His charade is found out. He is charged with fraud and there is a trial. And Abbas Kuristami read about Sabzian's story in a magazine. Um, there was this journalist who wrote a story about it. And so he decided to make a film. The film came out in 1990. And so it's really about Sabzian, his 
duplicity, you know, that he lied about being Mokmoboff. But more than that, it's an innovative film because all the people involved in this very true story play themselves in the film. They do reenactments of certain scenes. There are scenes of the trial that Sabzion went through. So it's a film that blends documentary and realism, you know, fiction and documentary. And it uses the actual people in the film. So when you're watching the film, you never really know what you're watching. It's really an uncategorizable film in a lot of ways. Because the people are playing themselves, but they're reenacting scenes. So at times it feels like a documentary, but then at times it feels scripted and it is scripted. So it it raises larger questions about identity, about the, the art of cinema, the artifice of cinema and documentary, the way truth and reality are constructed. But for me, more than anything, this film is about the power of cinema, the power of film. It is a movie about a cinephile, about a man almost feverishly in love with film and how he is consumed by cinema as well. And that's sort of the most compelling part of it for me is this character of Sabzion. But I did want to talk a bit about Kiarostami. His cinema means a lot to me. His films mean a lot to me. Um, this film is part of a series, as I said before, that I'm that I have done about formative art house films that have made me fall in love with cinema. I talked about The Passion of Joan of Arc, La Jetée, Cleo from Five to Seven, La Ventura. These were films that I saw in 2011 when I became interested in European art house film. Now, Close Up is really central and important in my life because I watched it a few years later. I watched it for the first time in 2014. And for me, Kiarostami cinema takes me beyond Europe. It gets me interested in Iranian cinema, of course. Um, I, I do watch Iranian films when I can. I, I haven't watched as much as I would like. I haven't even seen a Makhmobal film. Um, but I've seen some of Farhadi's work, who I really love. Um, especially A Separation. That's really an essential masterpiece, I think. So, Kiarostami opens me up to Iran and Iranian cinema. But he just gets me beyond Europe, really. And I start to fall in love with other directors like Yasujiro Ozu or Sachajit Ray, you know, going beyond Europe, going beyond the West and looking at cinema that is um, in other parts of the world. And personally, his work is just very moving to me. There's a humanistic quality to his work. Um, I, I sometimes turn to it when I'm depressed. This actually happened when I did an episode on the podcast about his film, Taste of Cherry. Um, I was going through a difficult depression and I talked about that in the episode, um, cause it's a film about suicide. We don't know if the main character is depressed, but it's possible. I've talked about Kiarostami numerous times on this podcast. I talked about Taste of Cherry. I talked about his Coker trilogy. 
um, which similarly blends fiction and documentary in a lot of ways and has so many layers to it. Um, it's really fascinating. Um, I talked separately about a film from that trilogy called Where Is My Friend's House, which is this really beautiful film about a little boy. So I've talked about Kiarostami several times. I just love his work. Um, and I find it very moving. So I did want to talk for a little bit about him and about his work. He was born in 1940. He died in 2016 on July 4th. And this was a devastating loss to world cinema. Because Kiarostami really is considered a giant. I mean, I get nervous even talking about his films. I don't feel worthy of it. I don't feel smart enough for his films. Um, you know, there's Bergman, there's Tarkovsky, you know, there's all these big names, and there's Kurostami. He's certainly up there with, with the greats. And um, he's in my top five, at least. I mean, possibly top three. Krzysztof Kieślowski is number one for me. And I also really love Yasujiro Ozu. I love Abbas Kiarostami. I love um, Agnes Varda, of course. So I have several that I really uh, love. I love Ingmar Bergman. So I would definitely put Kiarostami at least in my top five. So I read this article on Senses of Cinema to do some research about Kiarostami because I want to give you some background about him and about the Iranian new wave that he was part of. It's written by Myrna Saeed Vafa. This article, it was written in the early 2000s, 2002. So it's not the most current thing, but I thought it gave a decent overview, you know, of, of him. And in that article, he writes that Kurosami actually started with painting. He was sort of a painter and he was interested in graphic design too before he became a director. And the painting reminded me of my episode on Michelangelo Antonioni and his film La Ventura. Antonioni started as a painter. And I was also reminded that Agnes Varda started as a photographer. So it's very interesting sometimes how these really great directors do not immediately start out in film. They sometimes come from the visual arts. And that's apparently how it was for Kurostami. Um, he is considered part of the Iranian New Wave, specifically the second wave that began in the 1960s. Um, some characteristics of these films, according to Wikipedia, which I looked at, um, they're realistic. They use a documentary style. They're poetic, allegorical, self-aware. They can tend to focus on the rural and the working class. For Kiarostami, I'd add the use of non-professional actors, which he did throughout his career. In a lot of his films, he used non-professional actors. And obviously, Hossein Sabzian was not a professional actor. And none of the people in close-up are professional actors, as far as I know. I mean, there might be a few in there. Uh, Kiarostami really had a propensity for blurring fiction and reality. That happens in so many of his films. And his films almost also have a humanistic quality to them. And I wanted to read this quote by Saeed Vafa because I really agree with it. And he says, quote, What distinguishes Kiarostami's style is his unique but unpretentious poetic and philosophical vision. Not only does he break away from conventional narrative and documentary filmmaking, he also challenges the audience's role. 
He plays with their expectations and provokes their creative imagination. His films invite the viewer to reflect, confront stereotypes, and actively question their assumptions, unquote. And provokes their creative imagination. I definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot of gaps in Kurosami cinema and that he purposely creates those gaps for you to fill in for yourself. I think watching a Kurosami film does require a certain level of imaginative thinking and you have to make those imaginative leaps for yourself. I think a good example of that is Certified Copy that starred Juliette Binoche and came out a few years ago. I still have not rewatched it. I saw it when it came out and it completely baffled and perplexed me in every possible way. Um, I don't think I got it then. I probably wouldn't get it now either. I don't, I'm not going to say I like the film because it was so hard. It was, I didn't understand what was happening. But I think that's a really good example of the way he challenges the viewer to use their imagination, to fill in those gaps, to figure out for themselves what is going on, because he is not going to supply you with all of the answers. So um, I think Certified Copy is a really good example of that. I think I should revisit it. I don't know when I will, but um, that was one of those films I didn't get. Um, but maybe I'll maybe I'd get it now. I don't know. In 2012, there was a Sight and Sound uh, critics poll. They periodically do these polls, Sight and Sound magazine, to gauge what the greatest films are. And they ask, there's one for directors. There's a director's poll, and then there's a critic's poll. And in the critic's poll, Close Up was put into the top 50 greatest films of all time. It was um, put at number 43. So I think that's... I think that indicates to you how important this film is and how people who love film love this film. <laughs> I think if you're a cinephile, I think it's absolutely essential that you see it because it is about loving film. It's about being obsessed with cinema. It's about where cinema takes us, how cinema can help us live, help us survive. It can comfort us. It can represent our suffering and reflect our suffering because that's why Hossein Sabzian loves Makhmobov so much is that Makhmobov in his films represents the suffering of the working class, of the struggling person. And um, so on the Criterion Collection website, Godfrey Cheshire has an essay called Close Up, Prison and Escape. And he gives us some information about why this film is so important and why it was so innovative. Uh, Cheshire writes, quote, um, okay, let me find it. Quote, the film's key innovations, the unorthodox mix of documentary and fiction, the self-reflexive musing on cinema and its impact, the simultaneous exultation and questioning of the auteur, may have had certain precedents in both world cinema and Iranian culture, but close-up fused them in a wholly new and original way, unquote. So, Kurostami, not the first person, necessarily, to mix documentary and fiction, but he put all these different elements together in a really unique 
and innovative and creative way. And he created a body body of work, I think, that is unique, that is his own, and that has a signature style about it, you know. And so other people may have been doing bits and pieces of what Kurostami ultimately did, but they didn't fuse it and synthesize it together the way that he did. And something, a really important aspect of understanding this film and appreciating the film and analyzing it too, is understanding how constructed it is, that it feels like a documentary and it feels like you're watching something unfold in real time, but you're actually not. Cheshire writes, contrary to what most first-time viewers assume, none of its scenes are strictly documentary. Not just the reenactments, but all the other scenes too, are at least partly scripted or otherwise contrived by Kiristami. In effect, the film is not one in which documentary is blended with fiction, but one in which an intricate fiction is composed of real-life materials." Unquote. So the key to understanding this film, I think, is understanding how constructed it is and scripted it is to a certain extent. That we are not seeing things happen in a spontaneous, unscripted way. We are seeing it be reenacted. And that comes um, to, and that can best be exemplified by the final scene. And I will talk more about the final scene in my full analysis of the film. But again, I want to share this quote because I think it's the key to understanding the film and and really an interesting way to think about the film and why it's so unique, but also why it's so difficult to talk about. I really hope that if you're listening to this episode that you have seen Close Up because it's a very difficult film to talk about. What I'm going to try to do in my analysis is go chronologically through the film. Sometimes I'll talk about a film through its themes or through certain scenes. But I think with this film, I have to go start to finish and I have to talk about different things that happen and um, I want to share my notes and things I was thinking about um, as I was watching it. That's important to me too. I feel a very personal connection to this film and yet at the same time I struggle with it because it raises such complicated questions because it is a complicated film that is operating on many different levels at once on the level of documentary on the level of fiction and it's raising questions about those things it's it's destabilizing our expectations of a film at the beginning it says based on a true story and it tells us that the actors are playing themselves so from the beginning, we know that something very different is happening, that these people are acting, but they're also being themselves or acting as themselves. And so I think it makes us think about the artificial nature of films, but also the way that truth is constructed, the way that reality is constructed. These are very difficult concepts for me. I'm not an intellectual person when it comes to film. I'm more of a feeling person. So I'm not really sure how to engage with these ideas because I don't know if I have anything original to contribute about them. But I'm going to do my best with this film. It feels so much bigger than me. It feels so beyond my capabilities. 
Um, I get nervous even talking about Kiarostami or talking about his cinema. But the film means so much to me that I'm willing to make the effort, even if I fail, even if I'm not as good as I'd like to be at it. Um, you know, I'm not good at like postmodern stuff. And Kiarostami is definitely seen in many ways as a postmodern director, a postmodern auteur. And, um, because his work is so challenging in that way. But an important aspect of this film is the way that it's constructing the narrative, constructing the story, and asking questions about the way truth and reality are constructed, especially through film. And so in the final scene of the film, I'm just going to be brief about it, Sabzion is released from prison. The charges are dropped against him. And Makhmobov shows up the man that Sabzion has pretended to be. And the two men get on a motorbike and they just ride through the streets. Sabzion is very emotional. He's overcome. At one point, the sound goes in and out. We're led to believe that there are sound issues. And um, the whole thing feels so real. It feels so spontaneous. It feels so unscripted. Um... It, you think that you're watching a real, truthful, emotional moment. But Cheshire writes something very different. He writes, quote, Each viewer will have to decide whether this ending is compromised by its wholesale contrivance. In reality, Kiristami coaxed the judge into his verdict. Even Sabzion went to the judge later and complained, saying he felt sure Kiristami had somehow tricked him. As for the moving departure from prison, it was staged, and Kiristami shot from a distance purely for dramatic or docudramatic effect, and those sound problems? Most were created during post-production to serve the final scene's emotional punch, unquote. And so, as I said before, the key to understanding the film is understanding how constructed it is, how in some ways artificial or fake it is, I guess you could say, but how it doesn't feel that way, how it manages to feel real and authentic. And it raises questions, you know, when we see documentary attached to a film or when we know a film is fiction, what are the preconceived notions we bring to it? What are the expectations we bring to it? Even a documentary is a constructed thing. We think we're seeing something unscripted and spontaneous, but are we really? Sometimes we are, but the but there's still a director. There's still someone editing parts together. There's still an angle. There's still a bias. And so if anything, I think close-up makes us think deeper about film, both documentaries and fiction films. And that is why my analysis is going to be so deep and thorough, because I think this film warrants it and it needs it. You know, I want to go as deep as I can into this film because I think it's asking deep questions. But at the same time, I think it's also a really beautiful humanistic portrait of a dreamer, of a man who is a dreamer, a man who is sensitive, a man who is a misfit and does not fit into the society where he lives. A man who longs for, I think, some kind of transcendence through film and an escape through film. And there's something very beautiful about that, about this man who is poor, 
Sabzion is poor. He has children, but his wife has left him because he's poor and he can't provide for her. He can barely, you know, survive most of the time. But cinema enters his dreams. Cinema, cinema comforts him. Cinema, you know, and through this film, through Close Up, he is centered he is able, I think, to live out his dream to a certain extent, even if it's only for this film. And he's able to enact his cinematic fantasies, I think. So, so much is happening in this film. But at the same time, it's very constructed. And there is a manipulation that is taking place, that we are manipulated by this film, by Kurostami, you know, but on, but in a way, isn't there a level of manipulation in every film? Yes, Sabzion lied. He lied about being a filmmaker. He lied to this family. But so many directors lied. They lie through their films. It's all a lie. All films are a lie. You know, it, they're not real. They are not real. You know what I mean? And yet they are things that feel real, that these stories feel real, the characters feel real. So the directors in many ways are lying, but the lying is the path to the truth. You know, that it the, the lying creates revelations that take us into the truth. And so we are being manipulated, but I think we're entering into that manipulation and we're choosing that manipulation because of what cinema gives us because of the power that cinema has and it has a profound power over Sapsion and his story I think is the story of so many cinephiles of so many people who love film with all of their hearts the way I I love film why am I doing this podcast every week you know, I'm doing it because I love film. I put a lot of work into this, a lot of time and effort and work. But I love film and I love cinema. And above all, I think this film, even as it challenges us, even as it destabilizes us, even as it raises important questions about film, I still think it is a love letter to cinema. I still think it is a portrait of the power and transformation and transcendence of cinema and what cinema means to one man and the way it changes him and helps him survive and helps him live and so there's so much richness to this film and that is why I have to talk about it so now I want to talk about the film I want to give my analysis I'm so hesitant about it because I'm so um, torn. You know, how do I talk about this film? How do I not talk about this film? You know, it's just, it's just everything, you know, and watching it again four years later, the first time I saw it was in 2014 and now I'm rewatching it in 2018. It's still knocked me out. I mean, it was made in 1990. I was born in 1989. So this film comes out the year after I'm born. And it certainly doesn't feel like it's from 1990. It doesn't feel dated. It feels timeless. It feels close. 
you know, it's a film that I think you hold close to yourself, really, and that you never forget or let go of. And, um, my personal connection to Kiristami's work continues. I just, I feel, I feel very deeply about it. And I was very open in my episode about Taste of Cherry, how at the time I recorded the episode, I was going through a, a depressive episode, and I was really struggling, and it's interesting how something similar is happening now with Close Up, that this week that I made the this episode, and watched it, I've really been struggling with depression. And I would say that sometimes... Kiristami's films really do help. I mean, they're certainly not a cure for clinical depression, but they give you a sense of warmth and humanity and also just give you things to think about, you know, to put your mind on something else. And that's what Close Up kind of helped me with this week. I have just been obsessing about this film all week and trying to think about how to do this episode. So I just want to go from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, talk about certain scenes, talk about things that I was thinking about as I watched it, and I just want to raise questions, I want to raise um, issues, I want to share my thoughts, you know. For me, the central thing about this film is that it is about obsession. It is about a man overwhelmed by his obsession with cinema, because the really the the act that sparks all of this is Sabzion pretending to be Makhmobov. You know, he wants to become this other person, and it's partly because of his obsession with cinema, obviously, and his desire to be somebody else. What does it really mean for cinema to take over your life to the point where you would pretend to be a film director, to the f- point where you would lie to people, where you would, you know, in some way compromise your morality, I guess, and pretend to be this person that you are not. And I think that's an important question in this film, and I think it's a question that Kiristami is trying to answer, of why did you do this, Sapsion, you know, why did you pretend to be Makhmobov? But I think it, I think it's a testimony to the life that a film takes on in the viewer. The life that films and cinema take on in the people that watch them. How those films continue. How they can sometimes turn into an obsession. And so I would ask you to sort of keep that in mind. You know, as you watch the film or as you think about the film as... What is it showing us about obsession? You know, I think that's an important aspect of it. And I mentioned this earlier, but I want to reiterate it too, that in this film, I don't think we're ever comfortable with it because we're never sure what we're watching. If we're watching a documentary or a narrative film, we're always uneasy, I think, and and destabilized by the film of what's happening what's real what's not that was always in the back of my head as I was watching this and I did watch it on Filmstruck and it was really lovely to watch it Filmstruck um, has extras usually 
included with a lot of the films that they show. Um, and this one had several extras. There is interviews with Kiarostami. There is audio commentary by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Um, he's one of the people in the audio commentary. And um, there's all kinds of stuff. There's an extra film by Kiarostami. So I did not have time to, to watch everything. I, I did what I could. Um because of my depression and, and what I've just been struggling with, it, it took me a while to get all this together and like time has been running out because I try to release these every Sunday and I try to stay on a schedule every week because, you know, regularity is important with podcasting. So I do try to do that when I can. And it's a pleasure to talk about these films, but it takes work to do the research, to get my notes together, to get my thoughts together, and to actually record the episode. So um, I couldn't fit everything that I wanted to in, but I just did the best that I could. And that's all anyone can do, you know. And as I started watching the film, the thoughts came like immediately, you know, and I started thinking about things and I thought about how through his deception, Sabzion is really casting himself in his own film. He constructs an unreal reality in order to play out his own dream of being a director. He's entering another identity and he really sheds himself in the process. And I was thinking as I watched this film how much I relate to not wanting to be myself. I related so much to, to Sabzian, and I'm just going to say it like I have so much affection for this man and love him so much. He's not with us anymore, but I'm going to talk about that after I talk about the film. I'm going to talk about Sabzian's life after the film and different things like that. So that'll come later on, but he did die in 2006, which is just makes me so sad. Um, I'm not sure I've ever felt so connected to someone on a, in a film. I mean, I can't remember, really. I can't think of a character, either in fiction or documentary, where I felt such an affinity and such a kinship with them. Well, maybe Wanda, Barbara Loden's Wanda, for sure. Or Nicole Kidman and Jonathan Glazer's Birth. I mean, I do have certain films where I relate to them um, on a certain personal level, but... Sabzion just captured my heart, you know, all of his facets, you know, Sabzion as himself, Sabzion as Makhmobov, Sabzion, you know, in all his different formations, um, he certainly contains multitudes, I think. Everything about him fascinates me and obsesses me, and I just feel a kinship for him, and I do feel a tenderness for him, and so... I'm going to be pretty biased with my review. I'm not going to be harsh on Sabzian. I'll just tell you that. But some people have been harsh on him and, and, and judgmental of him and, and stuff like that. But I so relate to his desire to not want to be himself, to want to be someone else. You know, I understand that and why he would want to be someone important. He doesn't just pretend to be some random person. He purposely, you know, pretends to be Makhmobov 
because of what that means to be a famous, well-respected director and the kind of prestige that that brings to you. Um, and he's cast in Kiarostami's film and his, he's really able to, in a way, play out his dream for real through the film. Because here is someone who, since a child... Um, has been obsessed with films and in love with films. And then here he gets to be in a film. But of course, that doesn't mean that his life was easy after the film or anything like that, which I'll talk about. And the film on its surface seems really simple. I think some people would watch it and think, oh, you know, this is okay. But it is actually so much is happening. You know, people are playing themselves, you know, they're reenacting scenes. Um, we're never sure quite what's real and what's not. So there's always that aspect to the film, I think, where it's not simple at all. I don't think you could say this film is simple. And the film begins with the journalist who will end up writing the story for the magazine um, that uh, Kiarostami reads and then is inspired to make the film. Um, it was printed in a magazine in like 1989, the story about Sabzion. And so the film begins with the journalist who actually wrote that story. And he is playing himself. And he's reenacting the scene where he goes to this family's house, this family that met Sabzion, who's pretending to be Makhmobov. And, um, and so he's reenacting that and he's in the car and I think already we're asked, asked to really think about how reality is constructed. And I think the journalist can represent that in a way or make you think of that. Um, he is the one that will tell the story, you know, he is the one that will frame it and that will construct the reality of this situation, the truth of this situation. And readers will read his piece and they will believe certain things about the story. Just like we read stories today in the newspaper or online or on Facebook or Twitter. We are given a certain narrative that is shaped by someone else and that shapes the reality of it. And we sometimes don't have the full story and we sometimes don't have other perspectives and so we think we're getting the truth, but we're really not. And I wonder if that could also be applied to film. You know, especially with a documentary film, we have this idea that when we see a documentary, we're seeing truth. We're seeing reality. But I think Kiarostami is asking us to think more deeply about that, that a film, whether it's documentary or fiction, and his is both, is a constructed thing. It is shaped by someone else who makes certain decisions to create a certain effect, you know, or to to do something to the viewer. You know, that manipulation I was talking about. So, um, by I think focusing on the journalist and starting with the journalist, we're already getting into those murky messy, complicated ideas about truth and reality and the way things are constructed. Um, and I thought it was really interesting as I was watching the film, thinking about Sabzian and how devoted he is to cinema, how he really, you know, loses himself in films. And 
as I watch this film, as I watch close up, I myself am disappearing from my life and escaping into this film. The act of watching the film, you know, is enacting some of these ideas, you know what I mean, that film is an escape or film is a comfort and I find that in my own life, you know, dealing with depression, dealing with grief, dealing with health issues, dealing with loneliness, dealing with um, isolation and, and all of the things that I deal with on a daily basis with my own life, that I escape into these films, I shed my own identity and lose myself in these films that I watch and in a close-up in particular I sort of shed my identity and lose myself in Sabzion just as he lost himself in other people's films the way he lost himself in Makhmobov's films you know and so it reproduces that experience you know and the screenplay itself is also by Kiarostami. I think that's worth noting as well that he is, he has a hand in all of this. You know, he has scripted certain parts. He has made certain decisions. It is a creation of Kiarostami's. And that's an important thing to remember. At the beginning of the film, we are told that it's based on a true story and we are told that the people are appearing as themselves. So at least Kiarostami is telling us up front. And I think that's important to be honest about that. That these are not actors. These are the actual people from the story. And I think that's the reason I watched it to begin with. I don't even know how I came to close up. It's like I, I remember why I watched certain films or who recommended a film to me. Sometimes I'll remember that. With close-up, I have no idea, but I think I do remember being intrigued by the idea that the people had played themselves, and I don't think I had seen a film like that, where people played themselves, where they weren't being played by actors or whatever, and so I think I was really intrigued by that, and I wanted to see this film and what it was all about. So the journalist is going to this house and he's with the police officers who are going to arrest uh, Sabzian. And um, so some time passes. Like the thing is, is that they go to the house where they're going to arrest Sabzian, but they don't show the arrest. We don't see it at that time. We see the taxi driver um, who drove the journalist there and, and the police officers, I think. Um we see him outside doing things and um it's this beautiful moment like I don't know I love these moments in Kiarostami's films like where not a lot happens it reminds me a little bit of my episode about Antonioni's La Ventura where there are lots of scenes in that film where not a lot seems to happen but they're just these beautiful moments you know of of time passing and and um you get something similar with close-up at the beginning where the taxi driver gets out of the taxi and he picks up these flowers and he smells them. And then there's this can that rolls down the street. It's just, it's sort of atmosphere, you know? It's just, it's life passing. It's things happening. Because even though Sabzian is sort of 
in his own tragedy and his own suffering, there is a world beyond Sabzian. You know, there is a world beyond that particular story and it exists at the same time. And other things are happening at the same time that Sabzian is being arrested. You know, a man is picking up flowers. A can is rolling down the street. Life is continuing. Life is going on, you know. And I love little moments like that in films. It doesn't bother me. I don't, I don't need every moment to advance some kind of plot, you know. I'm totally fine with plotlessness in films. So he's arrested, and then we don't see the arrest, really. But um, there are some interviews with different people. The arresting officer is interviewed, and he talks about how he, Sabzian doesn't look like he would do something like this, like he would lie and, and, and all of that. People interpret his actions as him trying to profit or take advantage of this family. There is... A harsh judgment against Sabzian. Um, the family um, feels very deceived. Um, although the family tries to make out that like the whole time they knew he was faking it. I think the family is like they don't want to come off as like they were duped. Because nobody wants to come off that way. They don't want to come off as like these gullible people that fell for Sabzian's charade you know and his lie but I think they did and I think they got a little bit intoxicated with the idea that they might be cast in a film that they might use their home as a location in the film I think it spoke to their vanity you know and I think maybe they're ashamed of that or a little embarrassed at how caught up they got in it you know I think at one point Sabzian even says that, or Kiristami says that they were willing to like cut down their trees for a scene. Like they would have done anything to have this movie made. It appealed to their vanity. It appealed to their sense of being important and it made them feel important. And so it's very interesting to me how the both the family and Sabzian are implicated in this shared charade. You know, he's... He feels important by pretending to be Makhmobov. And then they feel important because they think a director wants to put them in a film. And so both of them are mutually getting something out of this charade and out of this lie. But of course the family doesn't want to admit that. And they don't want to look like fools or like gullible people. So the family is interviewed and they talk about things. Sabzian, meanwhile, is in prison. He has been imprisoned for what he did and, and he's charged with fraud. And there's this beautiful scene where Kiristami goes to the prison to interview Sabzian. Now, I have no idea of this if this is reconstructed or if he really went to the prison to interview Sabzian. Throughout the film, you don't know with these moments are they scripted are they reconstructed it seems to me like everything really was reconstructed in some way um i mean i guess the trial parts were real in some places and then um we know that the verdict was kind of you know uh created so kiristami goes to the prison and we meet 
Sabzian really for the first time and start to get a sense of who he is. He's soft-spoken, he's shy, and he is aware of Kiristami's work, and he's a fan of Kiristami's. And Kiristami asks him if there's anything he can do for Sabzian. And Sabzian replies, quote, you could make a film about my suffering, unquote. And that killed me when he said that. I just, I was like, oh my God. I think that's when I fell in love with him. Because, yes, he lied. Yes, he pretended to be Makhmobov. But he has his reasons for it. You know, and the film is about, I think, showing those reasons and trying to give people who would be really harsh against Absian or would judge him a lot to try to see his side of it and try to see why he did it. And maybe in the process, Kiristami is trying to understand it too. And, um, you know, Sabzian does admit to the fraud. He doesn't pretend like he didn't do it. But he does not want to be seen as a con man. And apparently the article that the journalist wrote sort of um, represented Sabzian as like this con man, you know. And the family thought, or they claimed that they thought, that Sabzian was going to steal from them. That he was checking out their house and stuff because he wanted to burglarize it. At one time, he does ask for some money. He claims that he needs a ride home, but he's actually just kind of poor, and he does ask for money from them, but I don't think it's a lot of money. Um, and so there are people that judge him for that. But he does not see himself as a bad person or as a con man or anything like that, you know. And, of course, the film is about showing why he did this, and he understands how it seems to other people. Um, but then he says, quote, I'm interested in art and film, unquote. And that's like, it's like the sweetest thing when he said, like, I'm interested in art and film. He's so, he just seems like this really sensitive soul. He just, he seems like this misfit. He just... He seems like there's no place for him. And that's the kind of person that I really relate to because I see myself in that way. I see myself as this person who doesn't fit in the world, who was not made for this world, who struggles to navigate it, struggles to survive it. Um, I think it's really hard when you are sensitive or, or tender or soft and you're interested in art, you know, and you're sort of this dreamy, romantic person it can just be hard. It can be hard to live in this world. And I see, I see Sabzian as like the poster child for this. He is like the patron saint of dreamers and cinephiles. If cinephiles had a patron saint, it would be Sabzian. I'm calling him Saint Sabzian. That, that will be his name now. When Kiristami meets Sabzian, he's been in prison several weeks and the trial hasn't happened yet. Um, so the trial is sort of on the horizon. Sabzian then tells Kiristami to send a message to Makhmobov that one of Makhmobov's um, films called The Cyclist. He says, it's part of me. So, oh God, when he said that about that film, I was like, oh my God. He gets it. 
I think he's someone who feels films. Like you can tell he just feels them in the depths of his soul. And of course, that's where the obsession springs from. Because when you connect so deeply to something, how do you not become obsessed with it? You know, I myself, you know, in thinking about this this subject of obsession, you know, I have it myself. Where like every moment that I'm not engaged in other things, I'm thinking about films. That's why it's called Her Head in Films. Because I'm, and, and with the podcast, I think the podcast is like, I think the podcast is my enabler. I think all of you listening right now are my enablers for my obsession. <laughs> because doing these episodes, it's like, I don't know, it's just, it's made me even more obsessed with film. And I think my identity has become more intertwined with film and cinema. Because I've started to construct this identity online as a film buff, you know, as a cinephile, and I have, I'm starting to project this image of myself, like, you know, I know about films, and I would never want to say I'm an authority about them, but I do watch a lot of them, and I think people have come to expect that from me, and so it just sort of reinforces it, you know, where you've created this image, um, you're starting to think about yourself in a certain way and then it just reinforces it and it's like this cycle you know like oh well I have to I have to keep watching films you know and um I get I do get obsessive and I've talked about it on the podcast where I go through almost like a mania where I just want to watch films constantly and I can't stop So Kiristami gets permission from the officials to film the trial. And this is where we get our title because he uses two different lenses as he's filming the trial. One of them is a wide lens so that he can show the whole courtroom and, you know, all the people in it and, you know, different things like that. And then the other lens is a close-up is going to do close-ups of the the camera it is going to do a close-up of Sabzian and this close-up is going to show Sabzian's face and what he's thinking and what he's feeling and it's going to centralize him really in these proceedings so um that's where we get the title. And I think I actually missed that the first time I watched it. <laughs> I, I didn't remember that at all. But I actually love that idea of doing the close-up on Sapsion and getting his perspective and his feelings and um and all of that. <clears throat> And Kuristami <clears throat> says something really important. He says that though Sabzion has pl pleaded guilty, things are much more complex with this story. They're much more complex than what the journalist wrote. And the camera, and I think this is what he says to Sabzion, he says the camera is there to show that complexity. 
um, to show what some people, quote, might find hard to understand or accept, unquote. So the camera really is there to show Sabzian's side of the story. I think Kiristami knows that people in Iranian society, people in that particular society, will look at Sabzian and judge him and see him as a con artist, see him as a criminal, see him as someone reprehensible. You know, why would you lie? Why would you betray this family? Um... And I think Kiristami wants to show that there's much more to it than we realize, just like there is in life in general. You know, every every story we hear in the news, there is more to it. And I've thought about this a lot lately with the media, you know, with the times that we're living in now, with this idea of fake news or alternative facts I think it's really, really important to think about the way we are given stories. To think about the way truth and reality are constructed. And I would, I think I would argue that that makes this film even more relevant and resonant right now. That the film is always relevant and it's always important. But the way it challenges the viewer to think about the construction of reality and truth the way, you know, a film is is put together and the way it is constructed, the way a journalistic story is constructed, how narratives are created that may not tell us everything, how important information and facts may be left out, that there may be a side that we're not hearing. I think that's important because Kiristami is trying to show, to show Sabzian's side because that's the side that didn't get told in the journalist story and that's what the camera can try to show i mean can can film be an oppressive thing at times yeah look through the history of cinema there's racism there's sexism there's exclusion there's all kinds of bad stuff that that cinema has been part of absolutely but i think in the right hands in the hands of somebody like a Kiristami, right? Film can actually be a powerful tool to show us a more comprehensive picture of something, to show us a different side, to show us another narrative, and to show us how to think about truth and reality in cinema. I think that's, that that matters. I think that really does matter. So now we see some of the trial, but then we have our first reenactment, really. I mean, we, can, we know it's a reenactment. This is when we know that they're acting to some extent because we see um, Sabzian on a bus. He's reading the screenplay of a Makhmobov film and the woman from the family that gets deceived by him sits beside him and so they meet for the first time she asks him about the book and he says that he wrote it so this is when he starts to pretend to be Makhmobov on this bus with this woman and she's very impressed you know that oh Makhmobov is sitting beside her and he 
offers to autograph the book and to give it to her. And so this is where the charade begins. This is where the deception begins. Um, and they are reenacting the scene. That's what's so strange about this film, too, is that here are two people who are willingly reenacting a scene from their own lives that actually happened. Like, the layers here are insane. I mean, think about a moment in your life where something happened, and then imagine somebody coming to you and saying, I want you to reenact that moment for me on camera. I mean, it's it's a very strange proposition, you know. So they are really, they're acting, but they're also being themselves. They're trying to recreate a moment of truth through acting, through artifice, you know. And I'm not sure how to, like, explain that or why that's so interesting, but it is. It's... I'm not sure. I'm not I think somebody deeper and more scholarly would know what to say about that, but it's just fascinating to think about these people reenacting moments from their own lives, you know? Even though there's no way that you can ever fully recreate it the way that it happened exactly, right? It's they're they're lying in a way. There's they're trying to convey the truth of that meeting, but they can't. Because you can't really recreate it. I just love how he autographed the book. I was like, oh my god. This is so adorable. Like, he is so in this. Like, he is in this fantasy, right? It's adorable, but it's also kind of strange, right? It, that you would go that far with it. And, oh yes, I'll autograph this book. But it's sort of this endearing moment, I think. He He's just pretending to be someone. I don't think he thinks it's going to lead anywhere. I don't think he knows where it's going, obviously. He doesn't know that that one lie will turn into many lies. And that it will turn into everything that it turned into, you know, not just the deception of the family and the trial, but the film of Close Up itself. Close Up would not exist without this story. It would not exist without Sabzian's deception and his lies. It just wouldn't. Then we're back at the trial. So not only is the film sort of looking at different levels of reality and truth. It's also playing with time. You know, one minute we're at the trial, one minute we're back in time, then we're back in the trial. Um, we, we go back in time. The family says that it thought they were, they were going to be burglarized, that perhaps Sabzian was part of some kind of group and he was going to come and, and burglarize their home because he was walking around it. He was looking at it. He was inspecting it. But obviously he was doing that because he said he wanted to make a film with them. And he wanted to use their home as a location. You know, I think it's pretty obvious he did not intend to rob them. That he was playing this role. You know, he was pretending to be a director. And and that's what he says. He says he's loved film since he's a child. He When he was a child, he used to pretend to be a director. But he didn't have the money to pursue it. 
And I think this film is a critique or at least an examination or an, an illumination of class in Iranian society. And um, <clears throat> I think it resonates beyond Iranian society because there are so many dreamers in this world. There are so many people that have artistic you know, desires and things that they want to do. They want to be a director. They want to be a writer. They want to be an actor. You know, they want to do something in the arts, but they're not able to because they don't have the means and they don't have the money. Nowadays, in a lot of the artistic professions, there's unpaid internships. So if you want to go into the film business, if you want to go into publishing, you're expected to do these unpaid internships. Well, how many people can afford to work for free? I mean, really, it would be people with connections. It would be people who have parents who are helping them pay rent. So in a lot of these professions, whether it's journalism, publishing, film, anything, anything to do with the arts, these, these institutions more and more are populated by people with money, people who are in the higher classes and have money. You know, it's very rare that somebody working class, you know, will be part of these worlds because it's just so difficult to break into them if you don't have money or you don't have connections or you don't have the ability to work for free, you know. And that is all, and that is also why a lot of those professions are having issues with diversity, whether it be racial or gender or even class diversity. We never talk about that. You know, we talk a lot about racial and gender inclusivity and diversity, and that's crucial and important, and I'm not criticizing that. But I think we also forget class diversity, you know, of people who are from the working class, who are from the working poor or, or poverty, you know, they don't get to be part of those worlds either. They don't get to break into that. More and more, there is no social mobility here in the United States. It's like, if you're born poor, you're going to die poor. And um, it seems like that's kind of what happened with Sabzion. But I'm from a working class background. You know, it's not an option for me to go into the arts. It's not going to happen, you know. But I'm. that's why I'm grateful for this podcast. It's like, it just allows me to have an outlet for these thoughts and feelings I have about this art form of cinema because I'm certainly not going to break into the film world or the film industry you know um yeah not in rural uh not in the rural south uh, yeah that's not going to happen so this is my little taste of of something special I think um so it's very important to see that Sabzian is someone who longs and aches, um, longs for and aches to be someone that he cannot be. He cannot be a director. In order to make films, you have to have money. Somebody's got to finance your film. You need usually thousands of dollars to make a film and sometimes millions. But usually, you know, if you're independent, you could probably do it for, you know, under a million it takes a tremendous amount of money to make a movie. Um, that wasn't possible for Sapsian, you know. It, it just wasn't going to happen. So this is a man who has to live with his own personal failure 
and the shame that he probably feels because of it. That he can't be the person that he wants to be. That he dreams of being. And again, I can relate to that. Like, I'm this person. I'm a dreamer. You know, I have so many dreams about what I want to do and, and all of that. And it can't happen. You know, it's I have limited resources. I'm lucky, you know, that I can do this podcast. You know, I put money into it. And sometimes I feel insane you know, that I'm putting so much time and effort and work and my own money into this thing, you know, into this podcast. And I just wonder, am I crazy? You know, what I'm doing? Um, but I'm passionate about it. And it is an obsession to a certain extent. And I want to follow this dream I have that's connected to cinema. And really, my podcast is my only way to do it. And so... I just try to not think about those doubts. And so um, I think when you're a dreamer, it's really hard when you just dream of being so many things and or there's just so much that you want to be and that you want to do in life and you want to have a certain status and you want to feel important and you want to um, have a comfortable life and and you want to make a living at your passion and what you dream about. And for so many people, that's not possible. And it's, it's not possible for Sabzi. And, and I think you feel his suffering over that and his pain over that. And so him pretending to be Makhmobov, it's just him trying to get a taste of that. And it, he only does it for like four days this this deception did not last for like weeks and months and years. He literally knew this family for like a week. I think it was less than a week. He was just playing a fantasy. You know, he wasn't going to burglarize them. He wasn't going to hurt them. He just wanted to be respected. You know, he just wanted people to think he was important. You know, He had always wanted to be a director, and so he gets to act like he's a director with this family. And he loves Makhmobov's films. There's a very specific reason why he pretended to be him, although he also looks a lot like him. When you see them together at the end of the film, you can kind of understand how somebody would think he was Makhmobov. They both have a beard. They, they look very similar. But what he loves about Makhmobov is that he saw his own, his own suffering reflected in Makhmobov's films. And that was very, very important to him. I don't know necessarily if I've seen my own suffering reflected in a film. I would say the closest was Barbara Loden's Wanda. And that's probably why I have such a deep connection to it. I would say Nicole Kidman in Jonathan Glazer's Birth is another one where it's a film about grief. And even though I saw the film before my father died, he died in 2006 when I was 16 years old and um, was a very devastating loss for me that I've talked about a lot on the podcast. It's like I can't explain myself without mentioning it. It's just, 
it's the key to me, I think. It's the key to so much of who I am and who I've become. But um, I saw that film when it first came out. I think it came out in 2004. I could be wrong. It came out in the early 2000s. So, and I don't think I've watched it since he died. I don't know when the last time was that I watched Birth. I mean, I could have watched it since he died. I don't know. I can't always remember these things. But it's a film about grief. And it is a film that speaks to my own grief. And um, I would say that and Wanda are really important films to me that I think sort of captured my own suffering, you know. So there comes a point when Kiristami, he gets very adamant with Sabzion and he wants to know really why he impersonated Makhmobov because he's not understanding it. And I don't think he totally understands why Sabzion asked for money because like I said before, he does ask for some money at one point, but he is poor. He can't even provide for his wife and children. You know, he has very little money. And so I guess maybe he just had like a moment of weakness when he asked for money. I, I don't think it's the end of the world, you know, if somebody without much money asks for some. But Kirstami, he really wants to know why he's not understanding it. He doesn't get it. And Sabzian says that... Um, that they gave him respect. I think this is the key to understanding why Sabzion pretended to be Makhmobov. It's not just his love of cinema. That's a big part of it, but it's not the whole thing. It is the respect that the family showed to him once they thought he was Makhmobov. He knew that this family would probably do anything he wanted them to do. I think it did give him a sense of power. And think about it. Sabzian is poor. He is nobody, really. And he feels his marginalization. You know, I think he feels silenced. I think he feels small. Um, I think he feels it profoundly. And... Makhmobov is the opposite. You know, Makhmobov is a legend. He is someone important. Um, and so I think Sabzion just wants to step into his skin for a little while. He wants to imagine and enact what it might be like to be Makhmobov. But as he says in the, you know, to Kiristami, to Kiristami when he left the family's house, he was himself again. He was Sabzian. He was the same man with no money and no prestige and, you know, no importance in society. Um, he, he wanted to keep playing that role because he loved films. But I think more than anything, he wanted to keep playing that role for the respect that, um, that he felt in that moment from the family. And I think that is a really big important part of why he did what he did. 
is that he felt like somebody important in society and he felt like he mattered and that he had some kind of power. And I understand that. I think all of us can understand that. We want to feel like we matter. We want to feel like we're important. And most of us are not. Most of us are not important. I'm not, you know, not in my everyday life. I don't feel any kind of, you know, like I matter to anybody. You know, I'm very lonely. I'm very isolated. I don't really have much in my life. I have this podcast. I have films. You know, I have things like that. And that's kind of what keeps me going. So I absolutely understand what Sabzian is saying. You know, that he just wants to feel like he matters. He wants respect. I think the role he played as Makhmobov was an escape from his dire and desperate reality. I think that's really what it was. And it's just heartbreaking to me to think about what it must have felt like for him to be Makhmobov. I think probably the joy and excitement of it. And then to imagine him leaving the house. And then he's back to being himself again. Because he can never stop being himself. There is no escape from that. And it's very interesting how Kurostami really is part of the trial. He interjects at times. He asks his own questions. It's really, in a way, his own interrogation of Sabzion and trying to understand the motivations and psychology of this man and his act of fraud and his act of, you know, uh, deception against this family. The film itself sort of becomes a kind of interrogation of of Sabzion as as a character, you know, of why he did this. But as I say, it only lasted a few days. You know, he only had a taste of it for a few days. I just, I don't begrudge him that, that, that he did it. Like, I'm kind of shocked that it went to trial. You know, I'm just kind of shocked. Like, I think if it happened here in the United States, I, I don't think that would ever go to trial. I don't think, you know, I don't think a jury would, would hear it or listen to it. But you know what? It's just occurring to me now how maybe ahead of its time this film was in looking at people who pretend to be other people. Because think about the internet now. That is a big thing where people pretend to be who they're not. I mean, isn't Catfish, isn't there a show called Catfish that's kind of like that? where people pretend to be who they're not. And unfortunately, I, I recently watched a show. Um, it's on in the Investigation Discovery Channel. Those of you who know me, I, I watch true crime obsessively sometimes. It's this show called Web of Lies, and it's about people who suffer um, like violence or a crime through the internet. Sometimes it's people who have been murdered, after they met somebody online, sometimes they survive. But it's all connected to the internet. And a story recently was about, and this is a really well-known, famous story here in the States. This young girl, um, 
killed herself. She had been corresponding with a young boy online and they had had a falling out and he had written things to her like, you'd be better off dead and things like that. Well, it turns out it wasn't a boy that she was corresponding with. It was the mother of one of her friends. She had had a falling out with this friend and the friend's mom pretended to be this boy and um, and the girl ended up killing herself. She was so distraught and and this woman pretending to be this boy had sent her messages that were that were encouraging her really to kill herself and when the family of this girl found out you know they lost it they were so upset they were so mad um they felt like this woman had really caused the death of their daughter and they did try to take her to trial and they did try to they may have tried to charge her with fraud actually but i think it got thrown out by the judge he said something like it would set a bad precedent you know to charge people for lying on the internet what i'm trying to say is that nowadays this is actually a really relevant issue of people who pretend to be what they're not people who take on other identities especially online the internet has made that easier than ever to do that you know to pretend to be another person to put a different picture that's not you to do a different name, to pretend and create these elaborate lies. Web of Lies is actually a fascinating show because there have been other episodes about this where people have pretended to be other people and have created these elaborate stories about themselves online and none of it was real. None of it was true. And so I think close up in some way Maybe it predicted the world to come, right? Where people, or maybe it didn't predict it, but it is, I think, commenting on this, what do I want to call it? On this tendency of some people, or this capability, this capacity on the part of some people to pretend to be someone that they're not. And why do they do that? Do they do it because they want attention? Do they do it because they want to feel important? Sometimes they do it for more nefarious or violent reasons. Sometimes they don't. Some people do it because they want to feel important or they want attention. And so I think Sapsion was sort of doing that, you know. But it's sort of interesting to think about it in the context of the internet and how people slip in and out of identities all the time online. So at the beginning of the film, we had seen the journalist go into the family's house and we didn't get to see the arrest of Sapsion. But Kiristami revisits that scene and instead of us being outside of the house, now we're inside the house. And so once again, we're back in time. You know, one minute we're at the trial where Kiristami is is questioning Sapsion and then we're with Sapsion back in the family's house right before he's arrested and um he had spent the night there and there's this really poignant moment where 
Um, he's in his socks. Um, and there's a hole in his sock and his big foot, his big toe is hanging out of the sock. And it's just this reminder, I think, that, um, of where Sabzion comes from. And he's in this really nice house. You know, it's beautifully decorated. And then here he is with this huge hole in his sock. And it's it's a poignant reminder of his own reality, you know. And we get to see him really pretending to be Makhmobov. And he lays it on thick. Um... <laughs> He's sitting in the living room. He really philosophizes about life and nature. He talks about how he tries to make the most of every day. Um, he is very believable as Makhmobov. So then we see the journalist enter and we realize that we're seeing this scene, you know, from the inside instead of the outside. And um, Sabzion can see the police approaching. He doesn't try to resist it or anything like that. Um, but he does get arrested. He doesn't have a record. He's never been in prison before. Um, that's important to note. You know, this is not a man who is habitually trying to hurt people or, or deceive people. He's just someone who finds comfort in cinema and it, it, it helps him. He goes to cinema, I think, for comfort, to see his suffering represented. Um, and he really says that he finds more comfort in cinema than the Quran, that he doesn't find a lot of comfort in religion. He finds much more in cinema. And I can relate to that as well because I'm not religious. And cinema is a kind of church or kind of spiritual experience for me. And it's not like that for everyone. You know, a lot of people go to movies. They're not looking for a spiritual experience. But for me, cinema is just on another level. When you see La Jetée, when you see La Ventura... When you see The Passion of Joan of Arc, those films take you to another place. Like, there's no way you could put that on the same level as, I don't even want to speak the name of the trash that gets created nowadays. Oh, God. Um, you cannot put that on the same level as just your everyday film that comes out. These are films that are on the level of, like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or something. Like, to me, this is art. This is art. It transports you. It moves you. It is beautifully created. So I think there are those of us who see cinema in this way, and then there are those who don't, you know. And, and if you're just the regular person who goes to the movies once in a while, you just don't get it. I think there are people that look at Sapsion and think, what the, what in the world? You know, they don't get it. I look at Sapsion and I'm like, oh my God, my kindred spirit, you know. I understand him, you know. But he really, I think, finds almost a religious experience 
or religious devotion and passion for cinema. At the trial, even though I guess we know now that some of it was possibly scripted or that the, well, we know the verdict was sort of contrived and some of this was contrived. Sabzion at the trial does say that he's not acting, that he's speaking from the heart. But of course, you never know when they are acting and when they're not. Like I said, we're never comfortable with this film. We never know exactly what we're seeing on the screen. So at the end of the film, the family withdraws the complaint. Well, now we know that Kurostami kind of had a hand in that. Um, and this is when we come to the ending of the film, where Makhmobov shows up and meets Sabzion. And Sabzion is so overcome, he begins to cry. He hugs him. We notice that they actually do look alike. That's what sort of struck me when I saw this, this scene. And I was like, oh my god. I can see how he got away with it, you know. And they go on that ride on the motorbike. They stop for a few moments and Sabzian picks out some flowers. <clears throat> I think he's going to take the flowers to the family. And it's just, oh my God. It's such a beautiful, beautiful scene of him on that motorbike holding those flowers. Um... I can't get over it. Like, it's still just, you know, I'd seen the film before. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what the ending was going to be. And yet I saw it and it still moved me. It's, I was so overcome because in those four years since 2014, I have grown as a cinephile. I mean, I've watched so many more films. Film has become even more central and important in my life. And so that scene for me was... You know, to hear Sabzion, you know, crying and getting emotional. If it was real, you know, I don't know now. Because of what Cheshire told us. That this was actually possibly maybe staged. Um, I guess it was staged. But it felt so real. You know, that's always my conflict with a film. Is that I know it's not real. I know the characters are not real. I know the story's not real. I know what I am seeing did not happen in like reality but the film is its own reality and it becomes your reality as the viewer it becomes part of you just like when Makhmobov said that one of not no just like when Sabzion said that one of Makhmobov's films was part of him that's what happens with film for me is that Bits and pieces of it break off and they become part of me. They are embedded into me. You know, they change me. I feel changed by them. I feel like my genes and my DNA are changed by these films. It feels so tangible. It feels so real to me, but it's not. And what this podcast is, and, and any time I talk or write about films, is me trying to convey that is convey that experience of this transformation, this alteration that happens inside of me, of me trying to communicate that, of me trying to put into words something that only exists in in this immaterial part of me, you know, in my cells, in my blood, 
um, in my imagination. How do I put that into words? And that's what I'm trying to do, you know, through the podcast, through my writings about film, you know, any, any time I engage with film, it's what I'm trying to do. And it's so difficult. And, um, that final scene, you know, of Sabzion meeting his idol, you know, it's so poetic. It's such a poetic ending of him meeting this man, Makhmobov. It made me think about, like, who would I like to meet and drive on a motorbike with? Like, who's the director that I would like to meet like that and tell them, you know, what they meant to me and what, who's the director that would probably make me cry? And I would have to say Krzysztof Kieślowski. He's a Polish director. He did the Three Colors trilogy. He did the Double Life of Veronique. I have done an episode about the Double Life of Veronique. I attempted to talk about that film because it means so much to me and it's one of my top favorite films. And so, yeah, I would get on a motorbike with Kieślowski. He's dead. He's not with us anymore. Um, and I would tell him what his films mean to me and I would be bawling and sobbing. Um, I wish Kislovsky was still with us. I really do. It like pains me constantly that he's not with us anymore. I mean, what he did with Decalogue. I have an episode about Decalogue. How could I forget? It was like the second episode of this podcast. Yeah, I've done the Decalogue. I've done the Double Life of Veronique. I don't know if I will ever try to touch the Three Colors trilogy. I mean, it just feels so beyond me. But um, he is the director that I would want to meet and just say, oh, your films, they just touch my heart and they mean so much to me. And so um, I'm glad Sapsion got to have that moment, you know, and he got to say what the films mean to him or he got to convey that in some way. Um it's it's a poetic ending and it's really beautiful even if it is contrived and staged um yeah this film it just challenges you on every level it has heart it has emotion it has feeling but then it also has that postmodern aspect to it that intellectual rigor i think where Kiristami is playing with form. He's playing with our ideas about what's real and what's not, with what's documentary and what's fiction. He's operating on many different levels of reality, um, having people play themselves and reenact scenes from their own lives. You know, he's asking big questions always. I think he was always asking big questions. And he did it beautifully and poetically and brilliantly. And he was definitely one of the greatest. And this film just... Uh, how how could I not talk about it? I had to talk about it. It's, it's a formative film. It's important to me. But I want to go beyond the film. And I want to talk a little bit about Sabzion. And about his life after the film... And, um, and just what it was like for him. So I definitely want to do that. For me, close up does not end when the film ends. 
for me, this film continues. It has a life that it takes on inside of me, inside of the viewer. I think it's one of those films that you don't forget. And I think you wonder about Sabzion. And you wonder what happened to him after the camera stopped rolling. You know, after he got a little bit of attention probably for being in this film. What happened to Sabzion? And so that's why I want to do this last segment about him. Because I don't know how you can't fall in love with him. Although I know that some people see him in a different way than I do. You know, they see him as troubled. They see him as a loner. They see him as someone who is too consumed by cinema. And um, and and maybe he was, you know. But to me, he is... I mean, I would never compare my situation to his. You know, I am not... In Iran, you know, that is a very specific society, a specific experience of living in that country and being a poor person or being someone who's marginalized. You know, I live in the Western world. I live in the United States. I've struggled, you know, um, I've been working class. I've, you know, not had access to resources, gone without food at times or been food insecure. I've almost been homeless. You know, there are things I've been through, but I know it's not the same as the kind of poverty and the kind of hardship that occurs in other countries. And I would never equate my experience with his. But in him, I do see a kindred spirit. I do see someone who I profoundly feel connected to and that I relate to. He is so in love with film. It's it's beautiful, you know, and it's and it's relatable. And but he's also someone who I think is broken. He's suffering, and he finds solace and comfort in movies. And he also doesn't belong in the world. So he is this outcast. He is this misfit. And so I find him to be such a compelling character. And he is complicated, you know, and maybe he is troubled, you know, maybe you could see him that way. But I see him as more of someone who is suffering, someone who is struggling and who finds solace in films. So I do want to talk a bit about what happened to Sapsion after this film. Um, there was a film made five years after Close Up. It was made in 1995. And it's called Close Up, Long Shot. Um, it's by a director named Mahmoud Chakrahali. And um, he talks to Sabzion. But he also talks to Sabzion's friends and family. And so it's very interesting to get an idea of how other people see Sabzion. And, but then also how he sees himself. And he gets to express his opinions and his thoughts and, and what he thinks in the documentary. So it's actually a really important document, I think. And if you do watch close-up on Filmstruck, I definitely recommend, after watching it, watching this close-up long shot, because I think it will give you a fuller picture of Sapsion and what happened to him after the film. But as I said, he is this figure that he really represents the the power of cinema, what cinema can mean to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the forgotten, you know, and um, how cinema can be both life-saving and life-sustaining. 
that art can be life-saving and life-sustaining. Because he says at one time in close-up, I'm interested in art and film. I wonder if his interests went beyond film. I mean, I would imagine that this is a man who was very widely read, and he seemed to really devour uh, art, you know. So people talk about him having this obsession, but sometimes an obsession can be life-saving. An obsession can keep you going. It can help you survive um, difficult circumstances in your life. And so this 1995 documentary is really about Sabzion, the man, beyond the film, beyond close-up. It's about a man enraptured and in love with cinema and obsessed with it to the point where you can make the argument that he actually loses a lot because of cinema, because of his obsession. But at the same time, it's why he lives. It's what keeps him alive. And so I want to share some things from the documentary. The way people see Sabzion is really complicated, I think. They see him, you know, they're not movie buffs. You know, they're not people who are really into cinema. I don't think they quite understand him, um, really. They see him as a dreamer. They see him as someone who doesn't fit into society. I mean, he really is an outcast in a lot of ways. And it's just, I, I, it's hard for me to talk about Sapsion because I don't think I've ever felt so connected to a person. When he does these interviews in this documentary, Close Up Long Shot, I could relate to everything he said. And so I want to share some of his words because they're beautiful. I mean, this man was, I think, a poet in some way. He articulated the power of cinema in a way that I don't think I've ever come across. I don't think I've ever seen a portrait like this or a man like this, a person who has put into words what cinema means to him. I've just never encountered it before. And so I just think he's extraordinary. And so I want to share some quotes from this documentary because they are um, superb. And they really articulate some of my own feelings about cinema. So Sabzion says, quote, Whenever I see a film, I dissolve myself in it to such an extent that I reach the bottom. I fade out and perhaps I get lost in it. And this has played an essential role in my life. Cinema is important to me. It's like a prism. A good film is part of my life. With every good film I see, I feel reborn. It feels as if I made it myself, as if it were my creation. I identify with the director. I identify with the actors. I feel attuned and in harmony with the atmosphere of the film. I feel as if it's my story. That's how films carry me away. That's why they've become my obsession. Unquote. I love some of the phrases in this about films making him feel reborn. About how he internalizes the film and how it feels like he made it himself. I love how he um, says that he gets carried away by films. And that's just something that I totally relate to. You know, when I think of some of the best memories of my life, when I think back on my life and think about things that made me happy or made me feel comfort or 
made me feel alive, I think of movies. I think of films I saw in movie theaters. These are very intense experiences. I remember being, I haven't been to a movie theater in years because of where I live. I live in a very rural rural area in the South. And there is no art house theater where I live. I do not get to see foreign films on a big screen. I'm sure I'm not unique, but I think those of you who live in larger cities may take it for granted. You know, if you live in New York, if you live in L.A., if you live wherever and they have these these films available to you, you may not realize that not everybody has access to that, and I certainly don't. The only movie theater within distance of where I live only plays blockbusters. They don't even play the Oscar films. I don't even get the Oscar films. I literally get the Dwayne Johnson movies, or I get animated movies, um, or superhero films, and that is not what I care for. It's fine if you like Dwayne Johnson. It's fine if you like his films, but I'm not going to go pay $10 to see those films, you know, so I don't get to see these movies in a theater. Now, in the past, um, I was a little bit luckier, and I had a few times where I was able to see certain films in a theater, and I hold on to those memories and cherish them because they were really important experiences. And I remember also watching films in my film appreciation class from high school that I've talked about. I mean, I was in that class over a decade ago. I graduated high school in 2007. So I'm talking about memories that are over a decade old from high school. And they are so intense to me that I still think about them. I still think about being in a darkened theater and watching films and like I would look up and I could see the box where the projector was and I could see the light coming out of it. And that to me was like so comforting. And I wouldn't say that at that time I considered myself a cinephile or a film buff the way I do now, you know, now I would call myself a cinephile. I don't think I'd call myself a film buff. When I think of a film buff, I think of someone with like an encyclopedia, encyclopedic knowledge of film. I don't have that. You know, I can't tell you factoids about different actors and different films. But I consider myself a cinephile. And it's so strange that at the time that I saw those films like a decade ago, I wouldn't have characterized myself as someone who was a cinephile or who really was obsessed with film. Um, that didn't happen until 2011 in my early 20s. And yet when I look back and think about those memories, they are so intense. Or when I think about certain films I saw years ago, it's just, it's so intense and it's part of me. Like like Sabzion said about the films of Makhmobov, you know, they are part of me. Or that particular film, The Cyclist, is part of me. You take these films into your body, into your soul, into your heart. The stories that are told. And that's how I feel about Close Up, that I have taken this story into me. That I have made it a part of me, that Sabzion himself will always be a part of me, that in him I see my own love of film reflected and I see some of my own suffering reflected, that he is someone who is marginalized, someone who doesn't have a voice, someone who is really nobody 
in everyday life, you know, in Iranian society. He has no status. He's not important. But he's full of dreams. He's burning. He's on fire with his dreams to be this celebrated director, you know, to be a Kiristami or a Makhmobov. And I have dreams too. You know, I have so many dreams. And I had a lot of dreams when I was a kid. I've always been dreamy. I've always daydreamed and stuff. And I always wanted to be a million things, you know, wanted to be a writer. I want to be this. I want to be that. But I think above all, I always just wanted to matter. And I wanted to feel important. Because I don't feel that way, you know. I just feel like I'm not here most of the time. I just feel like I'm disappearing. And then I don't even leave a trace, you know. That's how I feel. I feel so unreal and so disconnected from life. I feel that a lot. And I just feel like I'm nothing, you know. And I struggle with that feeling all the time. And so when Sabzion talks about his own suffering and his own marginalization, I get it. Yes, we are on opposite sides of the world in a way. He's in a completely different country, a completely different culture. He's so different from me in so many ways. But I see parts of myself in him. And he is part of me, you know. And I have sympathy for him. He might be troubled, but maybe I'm troubled. You know, maybe I'm strange and weird and, you know, talking into this microphone and doing this podcast. You know, maybe I'm crazy <laughs> and and strange, you know. Maybe that's okay. Maybe we need people like that. We need people like Sapsion, you know. And I think that these two films in particular, Close Up and Close Up Long Shot, I think these films are Sapsion's legacy, whether he knew it or not. I don't know if he understood fully the way he reached people and what his words did for other people and how he did for other people what Makhmobov did for him, that he represented and reflected the suffering of other people and articulated that. I really think these two films in particular are his legacy and they were an outlet for him to express his passion for film. Um, and I think that's really an important part. And this interview with Sabzion in this film, Close Up Long Shot, he's just, he talks so beautifully. He talks about how he'd like to live alone in the mountains. And he says something very startling. He says, and I can't get this out of my mind ever since I heard it. He said, quote, if I didn't have to go on living and were courageous enough, I'd have liked to be hanged. From the beams of cinema, unquote. So he basically wants to be hanged from the beams of cinema. This is someone who, I don't know if cinephile is a strong enough word for this person, really. I think he's gone beyond all of us in his obsession and his adoration for this art form. His life is cinema. And he says that if he was a director, he would use cinema to um, fight injustice 
And I think that, I don't think we often think about cinema in that way, of cinema as a tool to fight injustice. I think we often see it as entertainment, you know, and and pleasure. And it is, you know, I, I think it is for me a lot. But I think that's an interesting idea to use cinema to fight injustice, to use cinema to fight oppression. And I wonder what that would look like. You know, and and I think some people do use cinema in that way or they're trying to use cinema in that way. And I think that's a worthy way to use cinema. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I wish he could have been a filmmaker, really. I mean, imagine if Sabzion had been able to make films. I really wonder what they would have looked like. I wonder what kind of stories he would have told. Um... But as beautiful as Sabzian is, I think, as a person, he is, he's different. And we see that through the way other people see him in this little documentary. Um, and we see Sabzian's life after the film, and it's not very good. Um, he's still poor. He works um, at a book bindery, so he binds books, he actually works for a man that he used to work with years ago. And um, now this man owns the bookbinder. He owns this business and obviously has a good, comfortable life. And Sabzian is actually working under him and working for him. And um, at this time, you know, Sabzian has lost his wife. She's left him because he doesn't have money. He does not have his children. He has two children who are not part of his life. He does not have a steady job. Um, the man, his boss says that Sabzian really isn't interested in work. He only is interested in films. And he calls Sabzian's obsession with film an, an insanity. That it is an insanity. Because it seems like everything Sabzian does is for film. That he has no life beyond films. Um, that every moment, you know, is devoted to them. And sometimes he works. You know, he doesn't have a steady job or a steady income. Sabzian talks at length in the documentary about how he feels he was portrayed in close-up. Um he seems ambivalent about the film as much as I love it as much as other people love it he himself is very ambivalent about it and um he seems bitter I'm gonna use the word bitter um I think he feels like he's given everything he has to cinema but I think he wonders what he has received in return you know, he was in the film, he did the film, but his material life has not changed at all. He's still poor, he's still struggling, he's still marginalized. And I think we need to ask an ethical question here about the film and about Kiristami. This is not an attack on Kiristami or anything like that. But I think we need to ask it because he asks big questions and difficult questions in his films. Did he use Sabzion? You know, what obligation does a director have to the people who are in their films? You know, you cast them in the film. They're non-professional. They're everyday people. Do you have any obligation to them after that film ends? You know, what does it mean that Kiristami made this film, 
this film put him on the map. It really catapulted him onto the international stage. He became um, a luminary. He became a very important figure in world cinema. He's still, he is an icon. He is a legend. And partly because of Close Up. But Close Up would not exist without Sabzion. Without Sabzion agreeing to tell his story. Agreeing to be in the film. And agreeing, like the family he deceived, to being part of the film. You know, I mean, remember when he's telling the family, you know, oh, you know, you don't you want to be in the film? And they like it. They want to be in the film. They are um, intoxicated by the idea of being in a film. Well, Sabzion did the same exact thing, didn't he? You know, he wanted to be in Kiristami's film. He agreed to be in it. He agreed to let his life be used in cinema. He allowed his story to be used. But. Sabzion did not gain anything from it materially, it doesn't seem. I don't know. He's still poor, you know. He doesn't have a film career. You know, it's not like this film allowed him to get into the film industry. It didn't allow him to become a director. It didn't really lead to anything for Sabzion. And that is what he talks about in this film. He says, he really points out the hypocrisy of him being judged, of him being seen as this con artist and this liar, while there's no critical look at the family um, that he lied to, and this family wanted the prestige of a film. Um, and the journalist who wrote the story, the journalist used that story for his own gain and his own career. He knew that writing that story would help his career. So he's using Sabzion as well. And and Sabzion brings up Kiristami and says, you know, he even kind of compares him to a con artist. That He's saying that what he did, pretending to be Makhmobov, was no different than what these other people in the film were doing. That he was not the only person who was morally um, compromised. That the whole film is filled with morally compromised people. You know, people who want to be, who are desperate to be in a film and will do anything to, to be in it. A journalist who is taking advantage of a story to help his career. A director who is making a film about all of this and who uses that film for his own career and his own gain, you know, because this film put Kiristami on the map. It was an important film in his career, so Sabzion just says it, you know, I mean, he says all that, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he does, I think, feel slighted. He feels like all these other people gained, you know, the journalists gained something by writing the story, Kiristami gained something by making the film. He didn't gain anything. He's working at a book bindery. He looks very thin in the film, too. His hair is very gray. I mean, it's only been five years since the the close since close up, and in this documentary, he looks much older, and it's only been five years. His eyes look very sad and very empty in a way. Um. So I, I have to bring it up. I have to bring up that conflict inside myself when I think about. 
Kiristami gave Sabzian a voice. I would never deny that the film gives him a voice, that the film immortalizes Sabzian, right? Um, that a lot of people don't get to have a film made about their life and they don't get to be per represented, you know, in a mainstream film that becomes really famous and popular. But at the same time, did that really change Sabzian's material circumstances? And I don't know the full story. Could he have gotten something from the film and then just sort of wasted it? Or, you know, I don't, I don't know the full story. I can only tell you the way Sabzion represents it. That I think he feels bitter about it. And I think he feels slighted. That all these people profited. All these people, um, you know, gained an advantage through this film and through his story. Except him. That it didn't lead to anything in, in his life except more hardship and more heartache, you know. He says at one time that he feels like he sold his soul to cinema. That he's put so much time and so much money into it. And I think he wonders perhaps if it has been worth it. And so I think you could almost call his... It's like more than an obsession. It's like an addiction. It's like he can't stop. And he traces his love of cinema back to his childhood, back to his father taking him to see movies. And um, it seems to be part of maybe why he's so obsessed with it is that connection to his childhood. But everything that he, he's put into it, I think he wonders how much has he really gotten out of it, you know. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have his children. He doesn't have a life. <laughs> Um, like a comfortable life or a steady job or anything like that. He traces his love of cinema back to his childhood and to his father taking him to films. And so I wonder if some of his obsession is connected to him being a child and maybe to a better time in his life, perhaps. Although he does share a disturbing memory of being whipped um, by people. I think they were trying to teach him like a lesson or something and that he shouldn't I, I can't remember but he does talk about he talks about difficult experiences from his childhood as well so his cinema obsession has taken a lot from him you know he doesn't have a wife he doesn't have his children he doesn't have a steady job um he doesn't have a comfortable life he's still struggling um, he was in the film, but it doesn't seem like it's really changed his life in any way. You know, he may have agreed to do the film because he thought it would lead to that. That it would lead to him being able to get into the film industry and maybe act more or, um, or, or something like that. And I want to share with you an article that was written after he died. Sabzian did die. He died in 2006. And in the magazine Badoon, um, Coco Ferguson writes about Sabzian and his death. They write, quote, He suffered respiratory failure on the Tehran metro in August, slipped into a coma, and passed away on September 29th. Sabzian was a complex figure, a troubled loner, he spent the last few years hawking DVDs in Tehran's South Bus Terminal. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of film. Close-up was the closest he ever got to realizing his dream of becoming a celebrated film director, unquote. 
So I think in some ways Sabzion is a bit of a tragic figure and his life or what happened to him makes me sad. It makes me sad to think about Sabzion, this man who is such a dreamer, so sensitive, um, so in love with cinema and I think that if given a chance, he could have shared that love with more people. He could have had even more of an impact. I wish that he had been able to dedicate his life to cinema. I wish he could have had a career, you know, where he made money and could provide for himself while also engaging in his love of film. Like, I wish that for him. And he didn't get to have that. I mean, he got his moment of glory in this one film, Close Up, but he never got really anything else. And it just makes me so sad to think of him on the streets of Tehran selling DVDs to people, you know. And although I imagine did he like strike up conversations with people, you know, what kind of DVDs was he selling? Did he talk about the DVDs with people? You know, I sort of wonder about that. Um, I just think he was such an extraordinary person and it just hurts me. It breaks my heart to think about the trajectory of his life, that here was this person so intelligent, so passionate, so sensitive. I mean, this beautiful, beautiful soul. And the world just killed him. Like the world just destroyed him and broke his heart. You know, that's what the, that's what this world does to dreamers. It's what he, what's what it does to romantic, sensitive people. You know, it just eats you alive. It just destroys you. There is no place for people like that in this world. And so I almost feel like Sabzion was too good for us. He was too good for this world. But I'm glad we have some of his words. Um, and I, I'm glad we have something of him through these films, whether it's close up or whether it's close up long shot, where he is showing a more complicated portrait of himself, you know, He's showing his anger. He's showing his disappointment. But he's also showing his love and passion and what cinema means to him. And yeah, I think when you have an obsession, you can wonder, I'm giving so much to this. I'm giving so much. What am I getting out of it? You know, I think that can definitely be something that you wonder about. But he he did love cinema and he did love films. And so... I just, I hate, I hate the way his life ended. I really do. It, it upsets me to no end. And, um, there's a very interesting scene in the, in the little documentary close up long shot where he says something like he's small because he is a small man, but he's deep. He says that he has a lot of depths that people don't even know about, you know, that you could never reach the bottom of how deep he is. I believe that. I think he was a deep and um beautiful and extraordinary person and um he had his problems he had his issues we all do but fundamentally he was someone that just did not fit into his society and honestly i don't think he would have fit in any society i don't think it's specifically iranian society i mean maybe some people who are more knowledgeable about it would make that case I would argue he wouldn't have fit in, in United States society either. <laughs> American culture would not have been kind to him either. It's not kind to those of us who are soft and tender and, and sensitive and dreamy. 
he just, he wasn't made for this world, you know. That's how I feel about myself a lot. Like, I was not made for this world. I cannot survive it. I cannot navigate it. It's just too much. It's too painful, you know. But I have found cinema, you know, and literature and art. And those are the things that help me survive. And they are what sustain me. And I think they did the same for Sabzion. That he knew he didn't fit anywhere. He knew that he was different. And that he was going to struggle. But he had cinema. And that was the companion that he describes like taking the hand of cinema that his father, he compares it to like his father took his hand and then cinema took his hand and his, his father's hand went away, you know, but cinema's hand never did that cinema was always there holding his hand and it never left his side. And I just, I think that's so beautiful. Again, I've never encountered someone that articulated cinema this way and went beyond the intellectual. It's not that he's not smart and that he's not an intellectual person, but this is what I talk about when I mean going beyond academia. I do not think that that is the main way we should talk about film. I understand there's film theory. I understand that that is an important thing that academics do important work with what they do and with film theory and all of that. And I would never denigrate it, you know, ever. But there is this other line, I think, with film that is personal, that is emotional, that is subjective, that is passionate, that um, is a, more about feelings than it is about a theory or some intellectual thing. And that for me is what Sabzion is articulating and expressing. He's articulating that personal experience with cinema, the way that cinema becomes incorporated into your life. Um, that's certainly how I feel about it. That's what I try to do in this podcast is I try to talk about cinema in personal terms, in a personal way, um, that really communicates the relationship that develops between you and a film or you and cinema in general, um, and how it can be life-saving and life-sustaining. And, um, that is why I love Sabzion so much It's because he understood that, you know, he understood that this was life or death. That he he didn't really probably want to live if he couldn't have cinema, if he couldn't have films. That that was the meaning of existence. That was the reason for living. Um, I don't know if I'm quite as, um, you know, obsessed as he was. You know, I have other interests beyond film. I like books. I like art. You know, I like other things. And he may have too. But cinema seemed to be his primary obsession. So I have talked on and on and on about this film. It's extraordinary. It's beautiful. Um, there's a lot of layers to it. And um, it raises a lot of questions. It raises, a, it plums a lot of depths. It explores a lot of issues. And I think each viewer brings something different to it. For me, I fell in love with Sabzion. 
I felt an immediate kinship and connection to him. And that for me is the meaning of the film. That is my personal connection and relationship to it is this person of Sabzion and how much he means to me and how extraordinary he was. And so we lost him. And it's sad. It's sad to think that he's not in the world anymore because he was such a great ambassador for cinema. And um, I think the world is a little less beautiful because he's not in it. And I know that's so cliche and stupid to say, but it, it hurt when I read that he died. Because I didn't know. I, I, you know, I watched the film and then I went and researched and put in his name. And then that came up that he had died. And I just thought, God, another light has gone out, you know, in the world because... I think he was a beacon and I think he will continue to mean so much to people, you know, as long as we have cinema, as long as we have films. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening until next time. Keep watching great films. Bye for now.